The most important impact of the Russia-Ukrainian crisis is its impact on the Fed. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, the Fed will drive the US economy and US stocks more than any repercussion of what's going on in Eastern Europe. That's the plain and simple truth. We've talked about this before. The Fed are the masters of the financial universe. They have significant more influence over the trajectory of the US economy and stocks than anything happening in Eastern Europe at the current moment. Hello and welcome to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what is going on with you today? How are you doing, Aaron? I'm I'm avoiding nuclear warfare here in San Diego. How's is in Baltimore? You're avoiding it too. We're avoiding it here in Baltimore too. Yeah, uh, cool. definitely. Cool. We're going to be touching on some of that stuff today. Uh, but if you're joining us for the first time, Hypergrowth Investing is a weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we will take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. We go up. Every Every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator and lifelong learner and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke, I know we have a ton of topics to cover and a lot of it is extremely topical right now. Uh, so let's dive right in. Uh, kind of the latest on the Russia-Ukraine crisis and kind of how that's going to impact investors. Uh, one of the things that we're kind of seeing right now, and one of, I think, the biggest things that are is coming out of it is the weaponization of finance. Uh, what is your take on that idea of the weaponization of finance? Um, I'm assuming by that you mean the usage. Well, we're talking of, about sanctions, the the SWIFT ban. Uh, right. So you're talking about the usage of economic sanctions uh, and actions similar to that to to fight uh, a war with Russia, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. So that that's exactly what is going on. Um, first, I mean, let's let's just start the top of this by saying. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is a political, societal, and humanitarian tragedy. And while over the next hour we're going to talk about the economic impacts of it and the market implications of that, we should never lose sight of what's more important than the economic implications and the market implications. And that is the loss of life, the loss of liberty, the loss of independence uh, that is happening um, in Eastern Europe. Um, so everything that we're about to talk about is not important relative to that. Please keep Absolutely. that in mind. Always know that. That is that is priority number one is, is to make sure that we stop loss of life, that we stop loss of loss of independence, and that we allow people to have the the pursuit of uh, life, liberty, and, and happiness. And so I'm, I'm, I uh, want to just make sure that we make that abundantly clear um, because over the next hour, we're going to talk a lot about the economic market implications of it because there Which are does, quite a Yeah, few. and again, in the grand scheme of things, it does seem trivial. It seems small, but for people who- it's, 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 it's why people are here. People are losing money in the stock market right now. People are making money in crypto. It's good for them. <laughs> um, but there is a lot of movement, a lot of volatility as a result of this. People want to know what's going on. So let's tell them what's going on. So you want to know about the weaponization of sanctions, the weaponization of, of finance to, to uh, essentially thwart Russia's invasion. Um, 
that's exactly what we're doing. And we're doing it because, well, the U.S. and its allies are doing it because we don't want to send troops. We don't want to uh, risk the loss of our own lives, of our own citizens' lives, of our own troops' lives. So we are fighting Russia with the best way we know how to without risking the loss of life. And that is through one, uh, economic sanctions, basically cutting Russia off from the global economy. And two, supplying uh, Ukraine with a ton of military aid. So that's weapons, that's funding for weapons uh, and things of that nature. So those are the two ways that we're fighting this war, that the U.S. and its allies are fighting this war. And it's going to work, mostly the economic part of it, because we live in an increasingly and very globalized economy. Uh, Ronald Reagan started this in the 1980s. He started the globalization movement and the globalization movement has resulted over the past 30 to 40 years where we now have an economy that is so interconnected on a global level. Russia relies on Europe. Europe relies on Russia. China relies on Japan. Japan relies on U.S. U.S. relies on Mexico. Mexico relies on Canada. It is this giant web of dependencies. And when you isolate one of those dependencies and remove them from the web, you bait, economically kill them. It's economic death. And that's what we're imposing on uh, Russia. And it will work because the rest of the web is buying into it. The mm -hmm. rest of the important parts of the global economic web are also isolating and cutting off Russia. Russia, um, you know, selling oil is going to become exceptionally difficult for them. Um, selling natural gas, selling wheat. Now, that's a big deal because I believe something like fossil fuels, fossil fuel exports constitute, I believe. Is yeah, no, but in terms of Russian, the Russian economy, mm -hmm. fossil fuel experts, uh, exports power about 20 mm percent -hmm. of the economy. OK, so if you all of a sudden cut their arm off there and don't allow them to export fossil fuels in a way that they thought they could, you're really hampering the Russian economy. You're hampering Putin's ability to fund this war, to fight this war. You're damaging Russian morale. You're damaging, you know, support, Russian support for the war. And I think that is inevitably what will happen here. That is the weaponization that we're using right now. And it's a smart way to fight this battle because, quite frankly, sending in troops and get engaging in hard, hot warfare in Eastern Europe would result in a lot more casualties and loss of life than would be necessary on the assumption that these economic sanctions do work in hampering Russia's ability to fight. So when you talk about this web of interconnectivity between in a global economy, does that have does those sanctions on Russia have an impact on our markets? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, we talked about this last week. The big concern here is inflation. And today we're actually seeing oil prices spike. We're seeing wheat prices spike as Russia makes bigger moves towards uh, Ukrainian capital. Um, yeah. So that's that's the impact. The, the impact is that by sanctioning off a bunch of exports, Russian exports, you are going to reduce supply and global available supply of those uh, commodities. Uh, reducing supply on the same amount of demand causes prices to rise, causes commodity price inflation. You're seeing that oil's jumping to 105, wheat's jumping, metals are jumping. So you're seeing commodity price inflation um, for sure. Now, the important context here, though, is that our analysis suggests that such inflation will be temporary and not that large. 
you have to remember the U.S. and its allies have imposed sanctions against Russia before. This is not the first time Russia has uh, aggressively invaded another country in Eastern Europe. Let's go back to 2014 when they did it with Crimea. During that invasion, there were heavy sanctions imposed against Russia. Such sanctions caused a brief spike in commodity prices, followed by a multi-year bear market in commodities. Now, I'm not saying that a bear market in commodities is what's going to happen in 2022, 2023, 2024. But what I am saying is the fact that you got a bear market in commodities back in 2014, 2015, on the heels of the U.S. and its allies imposing sanctions on Russia, tells you that sanctions are not a big driver of commodity prices. Sanctions on Russian exports are not a huge driver of commodity prices. And so we think that there is enough oil reserves, enough natural gas reserves to plug the supply gap left by Russian fossil fuels. OPEC Plus is meeting on Wednesday to discuss increasing production of those fossil fuels. There's enough reserves to plug that gap. Wheat Wheat's a little bit tougher, but Russia's importance as the breadbasket of Europe, Russia's wheat exports have kind of tapered off and stabilized over the past few years. So maybe the importance there of the sanctions is not as heavy as it would have been a few years back. And then metals is also important. But when you consider the amount of metals that Russia exports to America specifically, it's very, 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 very small. Maybe you'll get some inflation in the jewelry market. Maybe you'll get some inflation in the diamond market. But broadly speaking, I don't think metal prices are going to rise that much or for that long in the U.S. So when you kind of break it down and look at what's really going on here from a commodity price inflation perspective, um, you're getting the price spike as sort of fear of what's going on. Once that fear settles and people look at the real fundamentals, you're not going to see durable or sustainable price inflation on these commodities. And I think prices are going to settle at levels where they were before this uh, crisis happened. So net net, I think the impact on the U.S. economy, the direct impact on the U.S. economy is going to be quite small. And therefore, the direct impact on U.S. markets is going to be quite small. Got it. Well, we, we've we also talked about how the impact on the market, but gross, we, when we started this podcast, we started in the beginning of the year and we started with, uh, again, your interest in growth stocks specifically, it was, it was rough, but we're, what we're seeing right now as a, res, as a result is that they're holding up right now, surprisingly well. Uh, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about what's going on here in that respect to specifically the growth stock market? Yeah, absolutely, Aaron. So we've maintained that economically speaking, the most important impact of the Russia-Ukrainian crisis is its impact on the Fed. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, the Fed will drive the U.S. economy and U.S. stocks more than any repercussion of what's going on in Eastern Europe. That's the plain and simple truth. We've talked about this before. The Fed, they're the masters of the financial universe they have significant more influence over the trajectory of the U.S. economy and stocks than anything happening in Eastern Europe at the current moment. So the most important impact, economically speaking, of that crisis is what it does to the Fed. And what it does to the Fed is it forces a dovish reassessment of the market, of the economy, of their policy trajectory. Before all this unfolded, Markets were thinking there was a 40% chance of a 50 basis point rate hike increase in the March meeting. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Investors were pricing in the base case was for the Fed to hike six or seven times in 2022, with eight hikes becoming a very real possibility. I think it was something like 20% probability of them hiking eight times in 2022. This is all before the Russia mm-hmm. uh, Ukraine crisis. Now look at those probabilities. Go to the CME group, go to their Fed watch tool, look at those probabilities. 50 basis points is completely off the table, according to the market. Mm -hmm. We were at 40% before the crisis. Now it's 0%. Literally, I just checked before this call, 0.0% chance of a 50 basis point hike in March. 99.8% chance of a 25 basis point move. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, we've gone from they could very well hike 50 bips to they're definitely, without a a doubt, hiking 25 bips. Look at full year 2022. As I said before, it was looking like six, seven, eight rate hikes. That's what the market was forecasting. That's what the market was pricing in. Now we're down to four or five rate hikes with the outcome of three rate hikes gaining traction. That was a 0% probability a few weeks back. Now it's 10% and growing. So all of a sudden it looks like we were going to get this super hawkish, super aggressive Fed tightening policy in 2022. But now we're going to get what is going to be a very dovish approach. I mean, I think when all is said and done, they're probably only going to hike three or four times in 2022. If that happens, yields have to come down. Because Mm -hmm. as we were talking about, I think on the last call, the spread between where interest rates are based on the Fed, the effective Fed funds rate, and the two-year treasury yield, which is supposed to track the effective Fed funds rate, is at all-time high levels. Mm -hmm. Uh, A week ago, it was like 150 basis points, meaning the Fed was at zero and the the two-year was at 1.5. But now the two years collapsing and collapsing and collapsing because it looks like the Fed is not going to hike enough time to support a 1.5 two year. So that means the two years got to come down substantially. It probably comes down to 1% maybe. What's the impact on the 10 year? Well, you're probably going to still have a pretty narrow yield or pretty flat yield curve, a pretty narrow spread because there are a lot of economic and political uncertainties out there. So assume a 40, 50 basis point spread on, on those two. Then you're talking a 10 year back down to 1.4, 1.5%. So you're going to see yields fall as well. In that scenario, where the Fed has a dovish reassessment of the market, where yields come down, where you only get three or four rate hikes in 2022, well, that's a scenario where U.S. based growth stocks excel mm-hmm. because one, they're U.S. based. Their earnings growth is not going to be impacted at all, maybe 2%, 3% by what's going on in Eastern Europe. And they're super rate sensitive. So they were destroyed in late 21 and early 22 as the market started pricing in six, seven, eight rate hikes. Now, if the market goes back to pricing in three, four, five rate hikes, you know, that's a 50% reduction there in terms of rate hike expectations. That should lead to a massive boost in growth stocks. So that's why you're seeing US-based growth stocks weather the current market volatility with surprising resilience. And it's also why I expect them to continue to perform better than the rest of the market for the next few months and over the balance of 2022. I think that you're going to get a dovish Fed. You're going to get lower yields. You're going to get still strong earnings growth. And that's a cocktail for uh, growth stock outperformance in the balance of the year. Well, as we kind of segue right into the Fed, we're getting closer to that March meeting. Um, and you, you touched on this a little bit already, but you know, how does the timing of this March meeting, along with the timing of the conflict, in Eastern Europe impact 
each other. Uh, the Fed, I mean, it, the markets, it's what I just told you, the market's pricing. I mean, the, this Fed is not going to hike 50 basis points in March. And 25 basis points is going to feel a bit aggressive to them. Mm -hmm. This this is historically the most dovish Fed in the history of the Federal Reserve, uh, led by a guy, Jerome Powell, who doesn't want to be the bad guy and doesn't want to upset financial markets or the U.S. economy and will do everything possible to uh, sustain uh, a long-term expansion and sustain a bull market in stocks. And uh, that means not going fast amid a, you know, what is the largest hot conflict in Europe since World War II. Um, so yeah, what how this all ties together is it forces the Fed to not be aggressive. It forces the Fed to be dovish. And zooming out, looking at kind of the big, big picture here, when... Russia invaded Ukraine mm -hmm. on Wednesday night. Uh, you know, I was texting a lot of people about this. And one of my lead analysts texted me and said, dude, this means QE forever. QE meaning quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a joke. But I think there's some merit to, to that comment that the Fed is so worried about upsetting the egg carton. Mm -hmm. about breaking the market away from its zero interest rate policy addiction. Honestly, what happened is in 2008, when the Fed cut rates to zero and when we had this decade of zero interest rates, it became like a crack addiction. Like the markets were just hooked on this <laughs> zero interest, like free money policy. Like that, they just became hooked on it. The economy became hooked on it. The markets became hooked on it. And the Fed is really worried about breaking that crack addiction. Mm -hmm. Really, they're worried because they know that it could lead to some disastrous outcomes if they go about it the wrong way. So the Fed is scared to death to move. They've been scared to death to move for a long time. And anytime some risk emerges, they immediately go back to zero interest rates. They immediately go back to being dovish. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing the same thing happen again. The Fed was so scared to move after COVID was so scared to move that when they should have been hiking in 2021, they didn't. And now in 2022, they're finally considering hiking. But guess what? A black swan risk emerged with Russia. And now they can't hike aggressively. And they may not even hike three or four times this year. So when all is said and done, you're going to end 2022 with what appears to be a very accommodative monetary policy backdrop. And the point here is that so long as the Fed remains worried, to break the U.S. economy and market of its addiction to super low interest rates, mm -hmm. then we are forever going to have a backdrop of super low interest rates because every time they're going to consider raising rates, some risk is going to emerge. That's what happens in the world. Risks mm -hmm. always emerge and they tend to emerge when things start to get really good. Everyone's like, oh, everything's fine. Oh, here's a risk. That's what happens. That's human life. That's that's the economy. That's the global economy. That's capitalism. Everything that's is good until happens. it's bad. <laughs> right. And so if the Fed is going to wait every single time in their rate hike cycle to wait until everything is good to finally hike, mm -hmm. then history says that when they wait that long, then when they start hiking, something bad's going to happen and they're immediately going to stop hiking. So does that mean quantitative easing forever? Does that mean accommodated monetary policy forever? Well, forever is a long time. I'm <laughs> not going to promise anything forever. But what I do think it means is that I have a high degree of confidence in saying that throughout the 2020s, 
Fed policy, central bank policy globally will, will remain highly accommodative. Um, and that throughout the 2020s, we're going to continue to see ultra low interest rates in the same way that we saw throughout the 2010s. That creates a backdrop against which growth stocks should outperform because low interest rates really help them. Look at the 2010s. What were the stocks that won big? Tech stocks, growth stocks, long duration assets. Same thing's going to happen in 2020s. We had this scare in 2021, 2022, early 2022, where it was like, maybe we're going to get this shifting. Maybe all of a sudden inflation's making a comeback. Maybe all of a sudden the Fed's going to hike interest rates. Maybe all of a sudden we're going back to an era of 3%, 4%, 5% 10-year treasury yield. No, forget all that. That's nonsense. What this crisis proves is we are not going back to that. This, this talk of a big shift in the markets is completely overblown. And instead, we're going to shift right back to where we were throughout the 2010s, mm. which is a low interest rate backdrop, full of slow growth, full of globalization, and full of growth stock outperformance. It's going to take time for the shift to get back to base, but we are going to shift back there. And that's why I remain highly confident in growth stocks outperforming throughout the 2020s in the same way they outperformed throughout the 2010s. Okay. Well, the another kind of thing that kind of might impact this is the jobs report coming out on Friday. Uh, comes out the first Friday of each month. Uh, how important is this month's report? Uh, it's, it's important, but not as important as previous reports because the fact of the matter is we have a war going mm -hmm. on in Europe. Uh, before these jobs reports were what the Fed looked at. They looked at CPI, they looked at jobs reports, they looked at PCE. Mm -hmm. That's how they decided their rate hike policy. But now they look at all those things and a war. Mm -hmm. And their job is to forecast and respond to where the economy might be. The war adds so much uncertainty that the February jobs report, eh, it's important, but mm -hmm. is it as important as what the January jobs report was or the December jobs report? No, not at all. Mm -hmm. uh, what matters right now is how the economy reacts on a forward basis to the uh, Eastern European crisis. So the jobs report still important, but definitely less important than previous jobs report. And we're not placing much weight on the numbers that are going to come out this Friday. Are there any other factors that we should be looking at? You talked about CPI, you talked about jobs report. Uh, are there what other factors in, a, in addition to having this conflict should we be looking at? Well, I think that something that we're monitoring really closely is uh, COVID-19 policies. Okay. That the inflation narrative about mm -hmm. sanctions on Russian exports causing commodity price inflation could very easily be offset by improving production capacity elsewhere in the world on the back of shifting COVID policies to less stringent um, policies, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so we're seeing the uh, a movement across the U.S. to remove mask mandates. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing a similar movement across Europe. We're seeing production capacity increase across Europe and the U.S. The U.S. just had its uh, the ISM manufacturing index came out this morning, and that is showing increasing production, increasing inventories, um, increasing orders. So you're starting to see the manufacturing activity in the U.S. pick up, and we think that's a result of shifting COVID policies of easing COVID fears, right? Omicron cases are now back to below where they were. Sorry, COVID cases are back to below where they were before the Omicron breakout. Mm -hmm. So what's really important for us to monitor and to, to monitor the inflation situation is, 
our COVID policies globally shifting to more normal life kind of stuff where we're at in 2019. Yeah. Um, We think that is happening. We are seeing that happening across the globe. If that continues to happen, it sets the stage for production capacity across, across the globe to normalize. That normalization will be so much larger in magnitude uh, in terms of its impact on inflation than whatever's happening with sanctions on Russian oil and Russian wheat and la la do uh, So we actually think that that is a much more important driver of the inflation picture over the next six months than what's going on in Eastern Europe. So we're following that very closely. Now, risk there and a big risk there is in China mm-hmm. because China continues to have a zero COVID policy. Everybody else is shifting from zero COVID to COVID safe and mm-hmm. even going you know, even farther out and saying, let's just be normal again. Uh, but China is sticking hard by zero COVID. And so they're starting to see some COVID outbreaks there. And that is resulting in some strict policy uh, to hamper production capacity in China. The big uh, China EV companies, NIO, Xpeng, Li Auto, they just reported delivery numbers for... Um, for February, and they were pretty weak. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, they're supposed to be weak because of the uh, Lunar New Year over there. Okay. Uh, and I think that that is definitely factoring in. But the companies, the management of those companies has also been commenting that, yes, these the new COVID-19 outbreaks in China are hampering supply um, and production capacity in that country. So that is a big risk to this normalization thing. But so long as China remains the only country that is sticking by that policy and the rest of the world normalizes production capacity, then I think we're going to be okay. And I think inflation continues to decelerate throughout 2022 to more normal levels by the end of the year. Well, another industry that's kind of getting highlighted by the Russia-Ukraine crisis is uh, cybersecurity. Um, yes. What are you looking for in when it comes to uh, investments in this space? Um, you know, is it price? Is it product differentiation? Um, what are what are things that we should be looking for when it comes to cybersecurity? Because we hear a lot about it. We hear about attacks on our own infrastructure. How does cybersecurity play a role, and what are some investments that can be made? Yeah, so we're really bullish on cybersecurity right now. Um, we're doing a huge deep dive into the industry. We're looking at every single company that we've ever heard of in the space. We're looking for the competitive differentiators that you're talking about. What are they? Well, zero trust is a big thing. Zero mm-hmm. trust is kind of the gold standard in security right now. Zero trust is essentially the security equivalent of you. Everybody is an untrustworthy individual Mm -hmm. and you have to prove yourself as trustworthy, either via two-factor authentication or some some authentication method that allows you to get into the system. So zero trust is really big. You want to see cybersecurity companies that are either pioneers or developing on or working uh, with zero trust uh, cybersecurity solutions. Um, That is pretty standard. So a lot of people are doing that. So that's not a huge differentiator. But if you're seeing a company not doing that, then that's probably a red flag. You probably want to stay away from that. Um, Outside of that, we're looking for really sticky contracts. We're looking for the companies that have contracts with government organizations, Mm -hmm. the DOD, the CIA, the FBI. They're selling into Europe. They're selling to allied nations because those contracts tend to be really sticky. The government does not like to switch providers all that often. Once they found one, they're sticking with it. They're signing 10-year, 15-year, 20-year contracts. So we're looking for sticky contracts like that. Um, We're looking for companies that are providing to um, bigger corporate clients like Amazon, Microsoft, Salesforce, because we believe those companies have the capacity to analyze cybersecurity solutions at a level most other companies do not 
Therefore, if they're choosing a certain cybersecurity provider, that's a huge vote of confidence. We're looking at the Gartner Magic, Quant Magic Quadrant reports. We're looking at the Forrester Wave reports. We're looking for leaders in specific cybersecurity categories, whether that be VRM or SIEM, whatever it is. So we're looking across all these things to find what are the highest quality cybersecurity providers with the best solutions, the stickiest contracts. And of course, as you know, we're huge on team. We want to find talented engineers at these companies. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for those companies. And then we're saying, okay, this is a great time to buy those stocks. And it's a great time to buy those stocks because one, they have long-term tailwinds. Cybersecurity is modern warfare. So mm -hmm. you need cybersecurity to defend yourself in the 21st century. And then two, you have a massive near-term tailwind with the Russia-Ukraine crisis, right? What we think is going to happen there is Russia is going to pivot to cyber warfare. Um, they want to retaliate against the U.S., against NATO for all the sanctions that they've that uh, we've imposed against them. But they can't retaliate economically mm -hmm. because they simply do not have the economic prowess to impact us in a major way at all. So the economic retaliation out the window. Mm -hmm. They can't really uh, retaliate militaristically because their military might is very insignificant compared to the military might of the U.S. and its allies combined. Mm -hmm. So if they were to retaliate militaristically, it is a losing battle. So they won't do that. But they can retaliate via cyber warfare mm -hmm. because it's something Russia has been doing for a long time. It's something they're pretty good at. And it's something that they can do anonymously. It's something they can do via many routes. They have the resources to do so. So we think their retaliation against the U.S. and NATO is going to be via cyber. Um, you're maybe already seeing that. You know, NVIDIA got hacked just mm -hmm. days after the U.S. levied sanctions. Toyota got hacked just days after Japan levied sanctions. They're saying those attacks are not related. Tough to believe that. Mm -hmm. Definitely seems like they're related. So I think you're definitely starting to see uh, Russia retaliate via cyber warfare. We think this crisis turns into cyber warfare or at least creates the fear of cyber warfare. Now, what that is going to do is promote increased spending by not just the U.S. government and not just governments of all its allied nations, but increased spending by all the major companies in all those countries as well on cybersecurity. And so we think that it is a great time to get into cybersecurity stocks. We think there are some great returns to be had in that portion of the market, in that corner of the market over the next six to 12 months and over the next five to 10 years. Because again, cybersecurity is becoming uh, ubiquitous and you need it to succeed, to thrive, to even have a business in mm -hmm. 2022. Um, so we're really bullish on those stocks right now. It's a really, really good sector to get into. Well, another sector that's been resilient in addition to the growth stocks and cybersecurity, cryptos. They've been doing pretty good with right. in, in the wake of an international conflict. Uh, people right. seem to have been, you know, flocking to cryptos right now. Uh, Care to weigh in on that? <laughs> yeah, well, um, crypto's true value is finally showing through. Mm -hmm. You know, for a while, we got into all this hype about NFTs and Metaverse and Web3, and that's cool. And I, I love those applications of crypto. I, I think it's really awesome. I think the blockchain allows us to do some really cool things in, in those categories. But at the end of the day, what is the blockchain? What are cryptos all about? It's about independence. It's mm -hmm. about decentralization. It's about enabling you to not have to rely on a government to sustain your wealth, to, pers to preserve your wealth. 
And we're seeing that finally show through. We have a crisis in Eastern Europe that is threatening the financial well-being, the livelihoods of Ukrainians and Russians alike. So what are those Ukrainians and Russians doing? They're going to cryptos. They're cashing out of their local currency and they're going into Bitcoin. They're going into Ethereum because those will hold their wealth, hold their value more than the Russian ruble. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to see the real, true, underlying core value of cryptos mm -hmm. shine through. And this is what it was supposed to do. Bitcoin was invented out of a crisis. It was invented out of the 2008 financial crisis as a means to allow people to not have to rely on the banks in their countries. Mm -hmm. Well, here we are in 2022 with another crisis where people cannot rely on the banks in their countries. And guess what they're doing? They're going to cryptos, which is exactly what Satoshi wanted them to do back in 08. So for you know Bitcoin maximalists, for people who've been in this space for a long time, this is sort of... Uh, I'm not going to say it's it's sweet. It's definitely bittersweet because you don't want to see what's happening in Eastern Europe happen. But it is nice to see that people are finding support, the economic support they need at this time in cryptos. And that's why the crypto market is breaking out. Now, important to note, this rally is not altcoin driven. Mm -hmm. It's Bitcoin driven, right? It's not the NFT hype coins or the metaverse hype coins that are soaring to the skies right now. It's Bitcoin breaking out. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's leading the rally. That's because we're getting back to the true value of cryptos uh, in their very purest and simplest form, which again is enabling financial autonomy. And so from our perspective, we're really bullish on that. Technically, from the chart perspective, we're breaking critical resistance levels and Things look good in crypto go right now. We're, we're pretty bullish on the near-term price action. So again, I think it, it, when cryptos first started, it used to be kind of equated as quote-unquote digital gold. Uh, but what we're seeing now is it's closer equated to you know the growth markets. Does it have the benefits of both a high growth but also a safe haven asset now? Uh, right, yes. Yeah. So the digital gold thing... Um, Yeah, that, that's kind of broken down. Um, cryptos have not been treated so much as digital gold. Up until very recently, they've been treated as digital gold. Mm -hmm. But for the majority of this crisis, for the majority of uh, the rate hikes fears that presided throughout December and January and uh, the first half of February, through those turbulent market times, Bitcoin did not track gold at all. Gold. Mm -hmm went higher, Bitcoin went substantially lower, Bitcoin tracked growth stocks. Now Bitcoin's catching a bid uh, because of the crisis in Ukraine uh, forcing adoption of, of cryptos. Um, but yes, I think in the big picture, cryptos are going to be more closely correlated with equities mm -hmm. than with gold or with commodities. Mm -hmm. And that is because cryptos have the same buyers as stocks, right? The people that are buying stocks are buying cryptos. People that are buying cryptos are buying stocks. That correlation is very strong and it's a good one because if you zoom out, look at the long-term picture of stocks, they go from the lower left to the upper right. They go up over time. They have a strong upward bias. Gold not so much. Gold yeah. goes up and it goes flat for several years and it goes up, then it goes flat for several years and it goes up, then it goes flat for several years. I mean, it's not really an alpha producing asset. 
So if you truly are a crypto bull, you don't want this correlation with gold. It's silly. Mm -hmm. That's not when you make big money to correlate with gold. No, you make big money by correlating with stocks because stocks produce much more alpha than gold. Mm -hmm. Cryptos develop that correlation. That's a long-term positive. We're also bullish on that development. So I think it's also important to note that cryptocurrency donations in the Ukraine government are now in the tens of millions. And we're kind of seeing this real world usage, not just kind of investment, but actual applications of transactions happening between people and uh, the country and the government of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to what what we just said about five minutes ago, which is that, hey, um, this is the true value of cryptos financial autonomy from the banks in your uh, country from the central banks in your country and during times of crisis that financial autonomy becomes a huge value add and you're seeing that in ukraine right now so very very positive um development for the crypto markets so and again we just touched a little bit on gold and i know i can kind of see where you're gonna go with this next question but there seems to be also uh, an, an interesting defense strategy uh, with gold peg cryptos. Um, yes. Why is there this interest in gold now? Because like you said, gold is, it's not, it's such a hard thing, to, I think, for some people to wrap their head around when it comes as an investment. It stood the test of time. But it's, again, to, to me, it's also one of those things where it's a rock. And that's me personally. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. It's a rock. Think of a rock on the beach. Yeah. Uh, think of a boulder on the beach. You know, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. Sand comes in, sand goes out. Seaweed comes in, seaweed goes out. Uh, the boulder is going to stay there and stay mm-hmm. in the test of time. So that's why people are attracted to it. When seas get choppy, you want to latch onto that boulder so that you don't get carried out to sea. Um, so it is a defensive well, asset. <laughs> What? Good analogy. I like that. I like that one. There you go. Um, <laughs> it is it is a safe haven asset. It's defensive in nature. Uh, it's going to hold its value. That's why there's interest in gold right now. People get interested in gold during turbulent times. Um, and yeah, that's what we have right now is turbulent times. So there's interest in gold. Now, to your point about uh, gold-paid cryptos, that's a new and very interesting way to play the gold breakout because you think about how you can invest in gold. <laughs> Basically, I have three options. One, you can go and buy physical gold. And I don't know many people that are doing that. There are some people that are doing that. And if you're one of them, good for you. I really want to see your gold. That's super cool. But most (laughs) people are not doing that. They don't have basements full of gold. So Mm -hmm. physical gold ownership for 95% of the population out the window. Mm -hmm. So now you got these other two options. One option is you can buy gold ETFs in the market or gold miners or gold related stocks. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about a gold ETF though, is that it carries an expense ratio and it's not paying you a dividend. So you are getting this, you know, like GLD has a 0.4% expense ratio annually. So every year you're paying 0.4% on on your assets there. So Mm -hmm. there's an expense ratio that comes with GLD. So gold ETF, traditionally a highly liquid, good way to play the gold markets, but has some costs uh, for that liquidity. Now let's go to pay gold crypto or gold pay cryptos, which is a new way to play the gold market. That allows you the same liquidity benefits of the gold ETF without the expenses. There's no expense ratio on gold pay cryptos like PAXG. Mm-hmm. So it allows you the liquidity benefits of gold ETFs mm-hmm. uh, without any of the cost um, negatives. Mm-hmm. So it really is the best way to play the the um the gold breakout at the current moment not to mention you can also stake that 
and earn income through it. So there's really multiple benefits in playing the gold break breakout through gold paid cryptos. Mm-hmm. Personally, I'm not a huge bull on gold. Never have been. I mm-hmm. don't think I ever will be. But I understand gold's importance in portfolios as a hedge mm-hmm. against volatility, as a safe haven asset, as an anchor, as the rock of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're going to do that, then probably the best way to do it is through gold paid cryptos mm-hmm. and specifically through PaxG. I think PaxG is a really interesting play there. So um, if you're going to play gold, consider PaxG. Okay. Gold packs G. Got it. So shifting gears a little bit. Uh, and again, one of the things that we're kind of seeing as a result of this, of the crisis is, uh, again, the sanctions on Russia uh, have to do with their yeah. exports, one of them mainly being oil. And we're seeing, and I think the one impact that I think the the average U.S. citizen is seeing right now is at the the gas stations. The gas prices are going up right now, which kind of leads into alternative energy. You know, is this going to, is this surge in gas price the tipping point for alternative energy um because it feels right now like right now this conversation is more important than ever uh yeah so the energy independence uh conversation is getting a lot of traction um from everyone really it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you stand on energy Mm -hmm. independence is, is gaining a lot of traction and in our opinion the only viable pathway for global energy independence is through clean energies Mm -hmm. because the reality is fossil fuels natural gas oil they only exist in certain places on earth and where they do exist they tend to exist in abundance and where they don't exist they will never exist so if you try to create energy independence through fossil fuels, through natural gas and oil, you're only creating energy independence for yourself, for your country that's producing it. And the country that can't produce it is never going to become energy independent that way because they simply cannot produce it. They don't have it in their country. So the scarcity of production of fossil fuels means that they are factually not a viable pathway to global ubiquitous energy independence. They are a pathway to energy independence for a few countries, but not a viable pathway for energy independence for every country. So if we want to truly reach global ubiquitous energy independence for every country on earth, the only way to do that is through clean energy because guess what in 99% of places on earth the sun shines mm-hmm. in 99% of places on earth the wind blows mm-hmm. and where it doesn't or where it can lack for sometimes we can transport energy there via hydrogen or we can store energy in those places locally via lithium-ion batteries mm-hmm. so the only viable pathway towards true global energy independence is via clean energies. And I think that is the pathway that we're going to accelerate down uh, as a result of this, this crisis in Eastern Europe. It, it is underscored that we have massive dependencies. Europe specifically has massive dependencies on, Europe, or on Russian natural gas mm-hmm. and on Russian oil. 
um, let's remove those dependencies, not by ramping up natural gas production in Germany or oil production anywhere else, but rather by doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on subsidies for solar, on subsidies for wind, on subsidies for hydrogen. That is the economically smartest way forward and the only sustainable way forward. Because again, if we just go all in on natural gas and, and fossil fuels, um, not won't even talk about the global warming impacts of that. Just economically speaking, mm -hmm. that is a pathway for disaster because again, you're just basically shifting the dependencies in this web. You're not creating independence, you're shifting dependencies. Mm -hmm. Create independence by producing your own energy from the sun and from wind. And I think that's the, the pathway you go on. And you're seeing the markets respond to that because you're seeing clean energy stocks really catch a strong bid this week. Mm -hmm. uh, hydrogen stocks are up big. Solar stocks are up big. Wind stocks are up big. Energy storage stocks are up big. So you're seeing the market you know, throw a bid for those, for those stocks this week. And I think that bid is not misplaced rather it's correctly placed and those are some of our favorite investments for the next five to ten years as well mm -hmm. well you talked a little bit about the economic shift but you did touch on global warming and i just want to read you this quote it's from a UN, recent un report uh and uh deadly with extreme weather now climate change is about to get so much worse it is likely going to make the world sicker hungrier poorer gloomier and way more dangerous in the next 18 years with an unavoidable increase in risks uh, basically is what the, the science report says. And my question is, are we innovating in a way to combat this, but also profit from it? Are we innovating in a way to combat this? That's the first question. Mm -hmm. Yes. There are multiple innovations that are already in action and many more that are in labs across the world to combat the, the effects of, of climate change. And I am very bullish on those innovations. Solar panel efficiency has increased dramatically. Uh, solar panel costs have come down dramatically. Wind turbine efficiency has increased dramatically. Wind turbine costs have come down dramatically. Hydrogen costs have come down dramatically. Electrolyzer costs have come down dramatically. We're working on solid state batteries. We're making great progress in solid state batteries for energy storage and for electric vehicle applications. Current lithium ion batteries, we're just doing amazing science behind those to make them last longer, recharge faster and we're doing wonders on that front so yes there are several promising innovations both in action and in labs that are happening um, in the clean energy sector and all those innovations are what get us really excited about the space because to your second question can we profit from it well there is no reason at scale and every single major market research firm has shown this that clean energy costs will be lower than fossil fuel costs within five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. That includes solar costs, which are already cheaper. That includes wind costs. That includes hydrogen costs, which today are very expensive. But thanks to economies of scale and falling electrolyzer costs and improving hydrogen fuel cell efficiency, we will likely get those costs below fossil fuel costs within the next five to 10 years. So at scale, when you're looking at a 2025, 2030, 2035 window, clean energy fuel costs will be significantly lower than fossil fuel energy costs. Lower costs, you can probably sell for the same price point, means higher profit margins, means more profitability for the companies in this space. So second question, are we setting ourselves up to profit from this? Absolutely. Right now, a lot of these industries are run by subsidies. Right now, a lot of these industries are powered by subsidies. That will not be true for actually for that much longer. Mm -hmm. Take electric vehicles, for example. The electric vehicle industry was thought to be 
reliant upon subsidies. Those subsidies are now fading and fading and fading and fading and fading. And guess what? Electric vehicle demand is only soaring and soaring and soaring and soaring. And on top of all that, Tesla is the most profitable car company on the planet Earth. You know, they're selling cars at 30% gross margins. Mm -hmm. Other peers, other automakers, Ford, GM, barely breaking 10, 15% gross margins. Tesla's double, triple that. So not only is demand for EVs soaring with subsidies falling, but Tesla's also selling these cars at lower prices Mm -hmm. and higher profit margins. That's the beauty of technological innovation. That's why we're excited about the profitability potential in the entire clean energy sector. Because what's happened in electric vehicles is a precursor for what will happen throughout the entire clean energy sector over the next decade. And I think there are going to be some really big stock market gains to be had in this sector. Okay, well, then I got to ask you, do you have any favorites in this sector that you want to talk about? Um. We have a lot of companies on our radar in the sector. Energy storage is a big space for us. Electric vehicles, obviously, we love. Um, but one of the spaces we think is really slept on, really under the radar, is hydrogen. Okay. Hydrogen is a – it's at a tipping point where we believe it's going to become probably the most important clean energy source on the planet Earth by 2030. And at the epicenter of the hydrogen economy of the hydrogen revolution – is a company called Plug Power. The ticker is PLUG. Mm-hmm. And we think that stock, it was a $3 stock for a while. It ripped all the way to 65, 70, 75 bucks. And then it came crashing down in 2021, early 2022, because of this gross stock wipeout. Mm-hmm. And now it's stabilizing around the 20 to $30 range. We think that's a great entry point for this stock. It is a long term winner. They have the resources, the talent, the expertise, the know how and the partnerships to be the 400 pound gorilla in the hydrogen economy. The Tesla of hydrogen is what we liken them to. And so we think that that is an excellent stock to buy for long-term investors. And um, we're really bullish on what they can do over the next two, four, six, eight, ten 10 years. Awesome. Uh, well, kind of switching gears a little bit, uh, but still kind of staying within the context of the uh, obvious topical trend of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Uh, Elon Musk says SpaceX Starlink satellite internet is active in the Ukraine, um, essentially launching satellites to provide internet to the Ukraine during this time. Um, Space tech seems to be coming more tangible. And it's kind of, again, we're just kind of similar to how we're seeing applications of crypto. We're seeing applications of space tech. Um, Is there, is space tech an innovation worth investing in? And if so, are there other applications to this technology aside from just internet? Yeah, so I think there's two really important implications of of the Starlink news. And Mm -hmm. one is that it underscores technology's ability to help humans, Mm -hmm. really. Just put simply, Um, had this war happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, 30 years ago probably isn't relevant because internet connection wasn't a big thing. Mm. But 10 or 20 years ago, uh, an internet connection in Ukraine went down and, you know, the ISPs were hacked or, you know, were down for whatever reason. Um, Ukrainians would have been SOL, just mm-hmm. plain and simple, right? There is yeah. no solution. Now we have a solution to help humans in a time of crisis continue to get internet connection, which you may say, like, why do you need to check your phone? Why do you need a connection? It's a very important thing, uh, especially considering this is now a cyber war 
Mm -hmm. um, more than a hot war, a, a physical war. So it's a very important thing. So I think that's the first important implication of the Starlink news. The second one is, yeah, to your point, space tech is starting to mature to a point where it's having real world value applications. And are there other opportunities? Absolutely. This is just the tip of the iceberg for space tech. Um, everything from satellite imaging to um, asteroid mining to outer space solar energy generation to, yes, even space tourism. All of these things are in the top of the first inning of commercial development and deployment. And over the next few innings, over the second, third, and fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth innings, um, you're going to see huge growth in this industry. And the companies that execute, the companies that are at the forefront, the companies that do actually create commercial operations out of these emerging technologies, yeah, they're going to generate a ton of economic value. They're going to generate huge profits because guess what? This is rocket science what these people are working on. <laughs> Literally. Not many people on the planet can do what they're doing. So if they can do it successfully and build a business around it, that's the biggest competitive moat on the planet Earth or outside of the planet Earth. Too. <laughs> um, and that's why they're going to be able to ramp up margins, have huge gross margins on these businesses and generate enormous profits. We're really excited about space tech companies. It's really early. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot of bumps in the road, yeah. huge amount of risk involved, mm -hmm. but the reward potential is also enormous. And after the current sell-off in space tech stocks, we think the risk-reward profiles are exceptionally compelling mm -hmm. on a few names. And we are advising folks to get in there and, uh, and buy the dip in some of these stocks because we think that now is a great time if you want to earn big money over the next three to five years in, in these stocks. And just kind of lastly, touching on this also, does this speak to the resilience of emerging technologies? Uh, you know, progress and impact is relatively immune to kind of macro developments, unlike traditional value investments. Uh, it, it's, it's entirely immune almost. Mm -hmm. um, Innovation persists through through booms, busts, wars, recessions, um, everything you can imagine. Innovation persists through all that. Um, and actually, one could very easily make the argument and accurately make the argument that innovation accelerates during times of crisis. Mm -hmm. Times of crisis create a need that humans didn't understand they needed before. Mm -hmm. um, and that need needs to be filled by innovation. It needs to, that gap needs to be plugged by innovation. So you do see a lot of innovation emerge out of uh, times of crisis. And I think this crisis is, is the same thing. You're going to see a lot of innovation emerge out of this. The Starlink example is just one example of what I expect to be many innovations coming to the rescue uh, of people in this war and helping them out during this time of crisis. Well, we uh, moving along. We do have a few fan questions again this week. Uh, Valentin Vanta. Uh, what do you think about Skills' last earnings? Are you still bullish on Skills stock long term? Um, the short answer is no. Uh, <laughs> we, we've withdrawn support for Skills stock many, many, many months ago. Mm -hmm. um, that was, we were under the impression that they were going to be able to monetize mobile games in a unique way. Uh, but the more we saw the company operate and the more we kind of peeked under the hood of what they were doing and got progress reports on what they were doing, 
they're really monetizing games that a lot of people don't really want to play to start off with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their abilities to monetize outside of the kind of casino style games mm-hmm. uh, and go into first person shooters and go into racing titles and go into fighting genres. Uh, we were very underwhelmed by their progress there. And that's why we withdrew support for the stock um, many, many, many months ago. Mm-hmm. I think it's fallen all the way to, I don't even know how pulled up, but I think somewhere around three bucks now. Mm-hmm. Um, we got out way before this and we will not be getting back into the stock anytime soon. Um, we think it's until they can prove that they can expand to other genres and other titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stock looks like, looks like dead money. Um, because the reality is the casino mobile gaming category is very small and probably too small for them to benefit from economies of scale and leverage all of their operating expenses and turn what are wide losses into profits. Can that happen in just the mobile gaming casino category? Mm-hmm. Probably not. You're going to need expansion to other categories. We're underwhelmed by their progress there. Therefore, uh, we're not fans of the stock. Well, Rob Norman, our boy, he's second question that I think we've gotten from him, maybe third. Uh, and I think you've already touched on this, but since he's our boy, we want to make sure that you address this question. You had previously said that you thought gross stocks would take off when the Fed finally raises rates on March 16th, quote, rips off the Band-Aid. Uh, sounds like this has changed this summer, June. Uh, no, no, I, I would not. I would say if anything, it's changed now, mm-hmm. uh, if anything. Um we, I mean, before the war broke out, yes, we had our call was for the rip the bandaid off moment with the Fed hiking rates. But it seems like everybody knows what the Fed's going to do now. And yep. the Fed is not going to do this uh, aggressive rate hiking and that they're going to stay on a dovish path. So you're kind of getting a rip the bandaid off moment now. Now, it's not a rip the bandaid off moment like a quick, it's off. Mm-hmm. But it's more like it's kind of like we're peeling back the layers of the bandage and slowly taking it off. <laughs> and I think that's what's, that's what's happening right now. I mean, you are seeing growth stocks outperform. You are seeing alpha in, in growth stocks. We think that's, you know, this is the beginning stages of, of that growth stock breakout. Mm-hmm. Now, we believe it really will hit full swing in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, once inflation comes down, actually, once you see those CPI readings come down, once the Fed does hike rates and sort of comments on we're going to ease up on monetary policy uh, tightening here in 2022, once those things do happen around March, April and into the summer, we think you could get an acceleration. But we actually think we're already starting to see this Band-Aid kind of come off and we're seeing this breakout start. Um, again, it's a process as opposed to like a moment that it was going to be, mm-hmm. but the process is still underway and we still think it's setting us up for, for between today and December, 2022, we expect growth stocks to outperform meaningfully. Um, and we believe the process is starting now. Well, as always great insights. The feedback we're getting from our listeners has been amazing. You know, they love your insights. And I think the topical nature of this show means that people get to learn a lot from you week to week. Um, any last words That's before we wrap? Cool word, isn't it? Isn't topical? It's such a cool word. It is a cool word. Topical. Topical. I never thought about how cool it sounds. Topical. It is. It, it is a very, it is a cool word, especially when you say it like that. Topical. Topical. Well, do you have any other last <laughs> words before we wrap? uh besides me commenting on the coolness of the word topical i don't know what's the word for that by the way there's a word for the phenomenon in human in the english language when you like say a word over and over again 
And then it starts to sound like weird in your own head. Oh, I know exactly what you mean, and I don't, but I don't know the word for it. There's there's a word for that phenomenon. And if, I if you know what that word is, leave a comment in the in in the comment section so that we can. Yeah, please do. And if you so do it like I, I do it maybe once a week. Honestly, I'll just get stuck on a word and I'll just say it over and over again. And then at and then it loses right, its its impact, and you can't say it right. It doesn't sound right. Like, it doesn't I, right. Like, that's just strange sounding word why is it like that but anyways i'm sorry for diverging there the 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 final word here aaron Mm -hmm. is that crisis creates opportunities we have a time of crisis right now markets are responding negatively it's creating opportunities Cybersecurity stocks clean energy stocks cryptos take advantage of those opportunities because the first thing you learn is as an investor is to buy low and sell high yet mm-hmm. nobody does that nobody freaking does that and why don't they do that because when stocks are falling people freak out and they mm-hmm. run for the hills mm-hmm. do not make that mistake do is not amateur hour buy low sell high the principle still stands stocks have a long term and very strong upward bias they go up over time buy stocks on dips buy them big on big dips we're seeing a big dip right now in certain corners of the market. Get aggressive, accumulate, and wait. That strategy will pay off. Do not let the crisis spook you. That is the message to investors. The message to people is prayers to the people of Ukraine. Um, thoughts and prayers to everybody over there, everybody that's immersed in this war, everybody that's engaged in this war. Um, let's hope for the best outcome here. Let's hope for the least loss of life as possible and let's hope for a swift resolution and that you know Putin doesn't become exceptionally crazy over the next few weeks and days i think that's highly unlikely but the madman rats risk here is very real and mm-hmm. let's hope that it does not materialize into a reality absolutely um well thank you everyone for listening please if you have any questions or comments for luke leave them in our comment section we'd love to hear your feedback and what topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions until then please don't forget to like and subscribe and we will see you next week bye all